Hello and welcome to Queen V, the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, the life of of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria had been inspired by Prince Albert's ideas, and in particular by his vision of Camelot, the fabled realm of King Arthur. According to legend, Arthur ruled over an empire whose greatness was judged not by the extent of its conquests, but by a belief that the strong should serve the weak, that good must triumph over evil, that might should be in the service of right. Albert hoped that these principles would be the guiding light for Victoria and for her people. But in the coming years, that dream would be shattered as the queen, alone and more vulnerable, allowed the empire to take a very different path, a path which would lead her to the betrayal of Albert's ideals. Victoria changed after Albert's death. In Albert's day, his feeling of civilizing the world meant bringing uh, trade and education and uh, progress and uh, better standards of living to people. Victoria became less interested in that. Victoria wanted England to be dominant, to be preeminent. She thought it was the destiny of Britain to rule as much of the world as possible. Victoria's empire had come about more by accident than by design. It was an empire based on trade, and to sustain it, the British had acquired naval bases, coaling stations, and colonies around the globe. By the middle of the 19th century, The British had become the richest and most powerful nation in the world. They had pioneered the age of steam. They made more than half the world's industrial goods and three quarters of the world's trade was carried in British ships. But despite this success, Victoria's cities were pits of poverty and deprivation. There was never enough housing. The services were appalling, overcrowding, very, um, really very, very poor conditions. It was very easy for many just to lock themselves away and not to notice. Even in a great city like London, so many living in great houses could just shut their eyes to the huge disparities in wealth that industrialization was throwing up. Nonetheless, Victoria's subjects, rich and poor, were united in the belief that God had chosen them for a special mission, to export not just the product of their industry, but their ideas of government, law, and morality. Britain is a democracy and the British people wish to know why their government is behaving in a certain way. 
if it is acquiring more territory, if it is fighting wars, then I'd like to know the reason. And the simple reason is uh, development of the older idea of Britain as the agent of civilization. Britain is bringing peace and order and stability to the world, uh, to distant regions. In the Victorian mind, nowhere was this civilizing mission more compelling or more dangerous than in Africa. In the mid-19th century, Africa was known as the Dark Continent its vast interior largely unexplored by white men. It was believed by the Victorians to be a place of pagan worship, of blood sacrifice and tribal conflict. Inspired by Albert's vision of Camelot, men and women of the London Missionary Society journeyed here on a crusade to win converts to the Christian God, resolute in the belief that they were civilizing the continent. They included a man whose journeys into the heart of Africa would make him the most famous explorer of the Victorian age. His name was David Livingstone, a Scotsman. Born into a family of poor but passionate Christians, he worked in a cotton mill from the age of 10 and paid his own way through medical college. As a boy, he was very interested in the world around him. Uh, there's, there's stories about him looking for fossils in quarries and uh, interested in the plants and so on. So he had an interest in this natural world and, and science, of course, was developing at that time. I suppose that that's why he sort of uh, began to feel that, that he could do something through medicine to relieve suffering and so on. He had heard that you could be a medical missionary and that's, that's what he said, that's for me. And his father was a bit against this. He said, oh, doctors, oh, they, they just look for their fees and so on. But he was uh, fired with enthusiasm to take the gospel further. And um, working as a doctor and a missionary, he wasn't just going to deal with their, their spiritual side, he'd deal with the bodily side as well. When Livingston began his travels, the main British possession in Africa was a mere toehold on the southern tip of this vast continent. The port of Cape Town was a staging post on the long sea route to India. British governments had no interest in the interior, which was believed to be just thousands of miles of arid scrubland. But as Livingston traveled northward to the continent's great central plateau, he discovered a different Africa. The scenery changed dramatically from desert to grassland, with tall trees and exotic wildlife. Livingston wrote copious notes, documenting all the flora and fauna in minute detail. But it was a less pleasant encounter with the local wildlife that would first make him famous back in England. The doctor was working on an irrigation ditch when he was alerted that some lions were approaching the camp. He ran back to help his colleagues, but found himself the target of the lion's attack.
squeezed off one shot, but only grazed the beast. The wounded animal pounced. A native bearer saved his life. But Livingston had been badly mauled and his arm was broken. It was a terrible experience, and it wasn't just broken, but you see, it was, it was crushed as well. Miles from medical help, Livingston treated his own wounds. He even managed to insert a screw into the broken bone. I presume he was putting sticks as splints around and tying it, and, you know, what he couldn't do, he'd be, he would have somebody saying, hold this and tie there and whatnot. Very painful, and of course, very difficult to get a good, a good setting in that way. Weeks later, a fellow doctor inspected Livingston's wound with astonishment. He showed an amount of courage, sagacity, skill and endurance that have scarcely been surpassed in the annals of heroism. Such stories, published by Livingston and others, reached a wide audience in Europe and America, Readers were inspired not just with a sense of adventure, but with the feeling that they were joining the missionaries in an historic crusade. The missionaries see themselves as the pathfinders of civilization. They are uh, like Livingston, they can be explorers. The other value the missionaries have is that they are direct links between empire and the ordinary people. Everyone said prayers in church for their missions. Many churches and chapels supported their own missionary and regularly heard from him and sent money to him. And, of course, people liked to read about this, and uh, it made them, if you like, feel good. I remember reading a marvellous one which said, think of these unhappy pagans and how much your money can help to bring them to Christ, to redemption, etc., etc., Despite his growing fame, Livingston had little success in Christianizing the Africans. His only recorded conversion was the baptism of a chief called Sicheli. The trouble was, Chief Sicheli had several wives, but he had to have only one wife who was going to join the church. But he was a sincere man. He put his other wives away, gave them presents and said, sorry, I'm taking this new religion. He, he became a Christian, and, and that, has been said, was Livingston's only convert. And then it said, but he fell by the wayside because within a short time he took one of his wives back. When the chief lapsed, Livingston was devastated, but he continued his quest to bring medicine and Christianity to Africa. He endured terrible hardships, heat, rain and mud, the constant fear of attack from animals or hostile tribes, of desertion by his own men, and of disease. During the first three years of his travels, Livingston suffered 27 bouts of fever. He struggled across rivers and through tropical forests with a racing heart agonizing headaches, dizziness and diarrhea. 
He was driven by his Christian ideals and a nearly messianic self-belief. See, O Lord, how the heathen rise up against me as they did to thy son. Should such a man as I flee? Nay, verily. After 15 years of exploration, Livingston made his most spectacular discovery. They came down this great broad river which spreads out to, oh, more than a mile wide there. And they came down and there's an island ahead and the water was flowing on either side and he said that we're gonna, we're gonna make this or we're gonna be swept to one side or the other. Then you land on the island, as he did, and looked over and you saw this huge fall, the largest curtain of water in the world. He felt this was a, a wonder of nature, a wonder of God's creation. He said, angels in their flight must have seen sights like this. Livingston named the site in honor of his queen, the Victoria Falls. Livingston continued northwards and came across a spectacle that was to change his entire mission. He was horrified to see chain gangs being driven to the coast bound for the slave markets of Arabia. The sights I have seen, though common incidents of the traffic, are so nauseous that I always strive to drive them from memory. But the slaving scenes come back unbidden and make me start up at dead of night, horrified by their vividness. Slavery had been banned throughout the British Empire in 1833, and the Royal Navy tried to intercept illegal slave runners bound for America but the slave trade continued unchallenged in East Africa. Livingston was determined that Britain must rid the continent of what he called the open sore of the world. He concluded that the slavers must be tempted into more acceptable ways of making a living, that Africa must be civilized not by force, but by trade. My desire is to open a path into Africa, that civilization, commerce, and Christianity might find their way there. He would devote himself to exploration and attempt to find a route for British trade into the interior. Where commerce led, the cross would surely follow, and with it he hoped freedom and justice for the enslaved people of Africa. Livingston appealed to the crusading spirit that thrived in Victoria's Britain. 
a spirit that was embodied in the new Houses of Parliament in the heart of the British capital. Prince Albert had spent the last 10 years of his life supervising the decoration of what he saw as a temple to civilized values, good government, law, and the Christian religion. At the heart of the building was the robing room, where the queen would don the robes of sovereignty for the state opening of parliament. Here, in all its glory, was Prince Albert's vision of Camelot. The paintings he commissioned would be a permanent reminder of the legend of King Arthur. These heroic figures were to be role models for soldiers and scientists, the explorers and missionaries who would spread British values around the globe. But how to spread this vision? remained a hotly contested question. In the House of Commons, this question was fiercely debated by Parliament's elected members led by two men whose views of Victoria's empire were diametrically opposed. On the one hand, the conservative Benjamin Disraeli, a passionate advocate of imperial power and glory. And on the other, his lifelong adversary, the liberal William Gladstone, who championed the moral vision of Prince Albert and David Livingston. Gladstone was driven by a sense of high moral purpose and a heavy burden of guilt, in part because his own family had once made a fortune from slave labor. As the leader of the Liberal Party, Gladstone campaigned for the export of civilized values through commerce, not conquest. Gladstone feels that the empire is there, there's not much you can do about it. He doesn't want to add to it, and he believes that imperialism is a creed which can contaminate the British people, uh, make them warlike, aggressive, um, whereas he thinks of a world in which there is universal peace. When he looks at imperialism, he says, is this godly? And he decides it isn't. He sees it as might somehow triumphing over right. And he's rather frightened if the British people get in trance with empire. They'll go gallivanting off, fighting wars here, there and everywhere, They'll spend a lot of money and cease to be a moral force in the world. This view was fiercely contested by his great rival, Benjamin Disraeli. Disraeli first moved into the Prime Minister's office in 1867, and for the next 15 years, he and Gladstone would alternate in power. Disraeli believed in the expansion of the British Empire. He liked to claim that his ancestors had been rich Venetian merchants trading with the Orient, and this gave him a romantic enthusiasm for imperial adventures. Disraeli viewed the empire as an extraordinary asset. The empire made Britain a great power, a global power, and also enabled it to have plenty of muscle in Europe. And Disraeli, of course, likes the glamour of empire. He sees it uh, as bestowing prestige on the country. He eventually hopes that the white colonies will not follow the American course, but remain emotionally tied to Britain, particularly through the person of the crown. 
but Victoria was still in deep mourning. Since the death of Prince Albert, she had lost interest in the empire and all other affairs of state. Victoria went into what I called Perda, I think because she felt incompetent to handle being a queen. Albert had done the work for her so long. Albert had done everything, thought out everything for her, arranged everything for her, that she did not feel she was up to it again. The Queen found some consolation with the Scotsman John Brown. She began writing about him a few months after Albert's death. I have an invaluable Highland servant who is my factotum here and takes the most wonderful care of me, combining the offices of groom, footman, page and maid, I might almost say, as he is so handy about cloaks and shawls. He always leads my pony and always attends me out of doors. I think she also enjoyed his uh, picking her up in his arms uh, and uh, putting her on her horse and taking her off her horse again. For the first time since Albert, she had a strong, brawny man uh, who uh, held her in his arms. And I think that's as far as the sexuality really went, but she enjoyed it. To the dismay of her family and government, the queen and her highland servant became inseparable. A section of press and public called her Mrs. Brown, and her absence from public duty was widely condemned. There were cartoons in the newspapers about this, with showing an empty throne. Uh, there were uh, editorials in the newspapers about it. Why are we paying so much money uh, to maintain a royal family uh, because the royal family is the symbol uh, of the empire and the, of Britain, and here we don't have one. It was Disraeli who would rekindle the Queen's interest in public affairs. His relationship with Victoria had begun badly. She saw him as an upstart, an opportunist, what the British call a chancer. But Disraeli, with his considerable charm, set out to win her. His official dispatches to her were spiced with social gossip and witty anecdotes. Part of Disraeli's job as Prime Minister was to write an account of um, what was happening in Parliament and what was going on in the Cabinet to the Queen. And Disraeli's letters to the Queen were wonderfully detailed and rather gossipy and actually rather indiscreet. Um, he probably told the Queen far more than he ought to have done, particularly about divisions of opinion. Um, most people, made, uh, Prime Ministers, made these letters very brief and rather official. But Disraeli's letters to Victoria uh, were full of sort of protestations of affection and um, love and loyalty. They were largely sugar. But Queen Victoria lapped it up. And for once, the Queen was amused. She wrote to her eldest daughter, Vicky. Mr. Disraeli's reports are just like his novels, highly coloured. She'd never had such letters in her life, she declared, and had never before known everything. Her attitude to the upstart underwent a dramatic change. Mr. Disraeli has achieved his present high position entirely by his ability, his wonderful, happy disposition. 
and I have nothing but praise for him. She sent him primroses that she'd picked herself. In return, Disraeli gave her a set of his novels. Victoria had just published a book of her own, a reminiscence of her days with Prince Albert at their palace in Scotland. Disraeli was awfully good at just saying the tactful remark uh, that Queen Victoria would enjoy. For example, uh, one of the best was Disraeli saying to her, we authors, ma'am, which was precisely what Victoria longed to hear, that they were both part of the same club of writers. Disraeli bewitched the Queen with his romantic vision of the British Empire. It would have horrified Prince Albert. In the future, Victoria and Disraeli would form a powerful alliance for the imperial cause. But it would be some time before their partnership would bear fruit. Disraeli's first term as prime minister lasted less than a year. When he was voted out of office, the Queen had to send for the leader of the Liberals, Gladstone. Victoria began by liking Gladstone. He seemed to be an upright man. Uh, he was ambitious, but he was also extremely smart. Prince Albert had warmly approved of Gladstone. When the new prime minister came to the palace to receive the seals of office, the queen recorded her approval. He is very agreeable so quiet and intellectual, with such a knowledge of all subjects, and is such a good man. But her satisfaction did not last. Gladstone embarked on a whirlwind of liberal reforms that revived conservative instincts in the Queen that had been dormant while Albert was alive. Mr. Gladstone is a very dangerous man, and so very arrogant, tyrannical and obstinate, with no knowledge of the world or human nature. All this, and much want of regard towards my feelings, make him a very dangerous and unsatisfactory premier. She was not amused when he proposed that sailors might be permitted to grow beards, and she was horrified by moves towards female equality. The Queen draws Mr. Gladstone's attention to the mad and utterly demoralizing movement of the present day to place women in the same position as men. But it was Gladstone's private life that caused Victoria the most concern. Because of his fanatical religion, he felt everybody had to be converted to his ways of morality and ethics. He would go out in the streets at night, even when he was prime minister, uh, and solicit prostitutes, uh, take them back to their rooms, give them Bibles. Uh, he would give them money and he would ask them to uh, tread the straight and narrow ways. Victoria got to know this because her maids in waiting told her everything and it repelled her. At one point, when Gladstone was to go up to visit Victoria at Balmoral, she sent him a letter telling him that when he arrived, 
It was to be with a new suit of clothes that he had never worn before. It was very clear that she wanted nothing of the degrading uh, atmosphere of his involvement with these uh, ladies of the evening. Gladstone was unconcerned by the Queen's personal disapproval of him, but he was appalled by the imperialist ideas she had picked up from Disraeli. His own more liberal views of Britain's role were confidently being put to the test in Africa. David Livingston had returned to his dark continent. This time he had been sent on an official mission to find a trading route into the interior and to achieve his dream of combining commerce, civilization, and the Christian religion. To this end, he was provided with generous funds by the British government and accompanied by six British scientists and his wife, Mary, herself a devoted missionary. Livingston believed that the Zambezi River could become a great highway for British industrial goods. But as they voyaged along the river, the expedition ran into dangerous rapids. He believed that the Zambezi could be a trade route. This great river, which he'd seen at Victoria Falls, but when he traveled down it, he missed out one or two sections. He took shortcuts. That was a very reasonable thing to do. It saved a lot of time. But these shortcuts were quite impassable. And that's what the uh, Zambezi expedition found, that his hope of this being a great highway into the center of Africa wasn't there. Livingston refused to admit defeat. He kept up the search for a trading route. But then the expedition confronted another and more frightening peril. Despite repeated attacks of malaria, Livingston had dismissed the danger of disease. I apprehend no great mortality among missionaries, men of education and prudence who can, if they will, adopt proper hygienic precautions. But this optimism was to lead to tragedy. Mary Livingston was one of the first to go down with a fever. On the 29th of April, 1862, Livingston wrote to his mother, My beloved partner, whom I loved and treasured so much for 18 years, is with Jesus. She was a good wife, a good mother and a good Christian. I feel greatly distressed and weep bitter tears. Livingston had paid a high price for his beliefs and his grief would not end with the death of his wife. He had set out to civilize Africa through commerce, but back in England, popular enthusiasm for his exploits was generating a new hunger for conquest. Livingston's expedition had failed. Disease had caused the deaths of 12 of his companions, and none of his objectives was attained. 
Livingston was recalled by the British government and returned home to face scathing attacks in the press. We were promised cotton, sugar, indigo, and we got none. We were promised trade, and there is no trade. We were promised converts, and not one has been made. In a word, thousands subscribed by the universities and contributed by the government have been productive of the most fatal results. Israeli agreed with every word, and he soon seized the chance to promote his own vision of empire. When he won the next election, the queen greeted his victory with delight. I saw Mr. Disraeli at quarter to three today. He knelt down and kissed hands, saying, I plight my troth to the kindest of mistresses. The silver-tongued charmer was back in office. As he had once confided to a friend, You have heard me called a flatterer, and it is true. Everyone likes flattery, and when you come to royalty, you should lay it on with a trowel. Disraeli always loved the company of women, and he was very good at flattering women. And I think with Queen Victoria, he was able to see that she was lonely. And Disraeli was able to charm her and to flatter her. And I think very importantly, one of the things that Disraeli did was to encourage her to take a far more active role in public affairs. So the result of this was that basically he had Queen Victoria as um, an ally, particularly when he was Prime Minister. And this was absolutely crucial, I think, to the success of Disraeli's ministry, that the monarchy was behind it. Disraeli set out to increase Britain's prestige and expand Victoria's empire. And within a year of taking office, fate dealt him a brilliant opportunity. Just five years before, the Suez Canal had been carved through the Egyptian desert. It permitted ocean-going ships to pass between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, linking Europe and the East. For Britain, it was the lifeline to her greatest imperial possession. India, with 400 million people, was the largest overseas territory any empire has ever owned. The queen called it the most precious jewel in her crown. And Israeli feared that a rival power would cut the new imperial artery. The Suez Canal was absolutely crucial to Britain's empire. Um, Suez was the jugular vein, if you like, of the British Empire. It was through the Suez Canal that the route to India, the short route to India, which was so strategically important, happened. Uh, so for Disraeli, it was very important, and he was quite right in this, I think, uh, that Britain should have a controlling influence over the Suez Canal. The shares in the Suez Canal Company were owned by a number of French investors, and the ruler of Egypt, the Khedif. The Khedif had spent Egypt's wealth on palaces, museums, and railways. Now he was deep in debt to banks in London and Paris. The canal showed no prospect of paying a dividend for years, and he desperately needed funds. In 1875, 
he made a secret offer to the British. Disraeli wrote urgently to the Queen. Mr. Disraeli, with his humble duty to your majesty, the caitiff on the eve of bankruptcy appears desirous of parting with his shares in the Suez Canal and has communicated confidentially. It is an affair of millions, about four at least, but it is vital to your majesty's authority and power at this critical moment that the canal should belong to England. The caitiff now says that it is absolutely necessary that he should have between three and four million sterling by the 30th of this month. Scarcely a breathing time, but the thing must be done. The Queen replied by telegram the following day, approving his course of action, but fearing that it would be difficult to arrange. Normally, Parliament could have granted a government loan, but Parliament was not in session, and a French consortium had already bid for the shares. The Israeli sent his private secretary to seek help from an old friend. Baron Rothschild was the head of the great banking family and one of the richest men in the world. The secretary explained that Disraeli needed four million pounds, the price of the Kadesh shares in the Suez Canal. When, asked Rothschild. By tomorrow, answered the secretary. Rothschild picked up a grape, spat out the pits and said, what is your security? The British government, was the reply. You shall have it, said the Baron. The Israeli wrote to the Queen in triumph. It is just settled. You have it, madam. The French government has been outgeneraled, and the entire interest of the Kadiv is now yours. The Queen was delighted. Disraeli treated her not only as his monarch, but as a woman, and a woman of intelligence. When the canal deal was done, she wrote in her journal, Complete security for India. An immense thing. Mr. Disraeli said that my support had been a great help. His mind is so much greater, and his apprehension of things great and small so much quicker than that of Mr. Gladstone. Gladstone was strongly opposed to the deal because he thought it would draw Britain into new imperial commitments. He was right. The Suez Canal was to drag the British deeper and deeper into the murky politics of the Middle East. The overlords of the entire region were the Turks, but many of their subject peoples were rising against them. Faced with rebellion on all sides, the Turks resorted to mass slaughter. Russia backed the rebels, and Israeli feared that the Turkish Empire would collapse and open the way for the Russians to advance on the Suez Canal. However badly they treated their subjects, Israeli thought Britain had to support the Turks. But Gladstone thought otherwise. He was no longer the leader of the Liberals. He had retired to his country estate where he relaxed by chopping trees and 
setting down his thoughts on God. But he was appalled by stories of Turkish atrocities against their Christian subjects. He thought the corrupt and crumbling Turkish empire should be brought to an end. He laid down his axe and he took up his pen. There is not a cannibal in the South Sea Islands whose indignation would not arise and overboil at the recital of what has been done. Let the Turks now carry away their abuses in the only possible manner, namely by carrying off themselves. This thorough riddance, this most blessed deliverance, is the only reparation we can make to the memory of those heaps and heaps of dead, to the violated purity alike of matrons, maiden, and of child. Israeli called the style of Gladstone's protest vulgar, remarking that of all the atrocities, Gladstone's writings were probably the worst. But Gladstone had caught the public mood, and in the House of Commons, Disraeli was forced to choose his words with more care. Our duty at this critical moment is to maintain the empire of England, nor will we agree to any step, though it may obtain for a moment comparative quiet and a false prosperity, that hazards the existence of empire. Disraeli backed his words with action. As the Russians advanced on the Turkish capital, he dispatched a British fleet, led by the most powerful battleship in the world, HMS Devastation. Public opinion swung to Disraeli's side. War fever spread through the pubs and music halls of Britain. The British may not have liked what the Turks were doing to their Christian subjects but they shared Disraeli's determination to stop the Russians. Most ordinary British people see Russia as an antithesis of Britain. Here is Britain, progressive and enlightened. There is Russia, ignorant, backward, ruled by a despot, uh, with most of its population in abject slavery as serfs. Um, so there was a sort of great deal of Russophobia in Britain. Russia was just disliked as an odious country. Fearful of war with Britain, the Russians agreed to negotiate. Disraeli set off to attend peace talks. He returned in triumph. His diplomacy had forced the Russians to halt their advance on the Middle East. The lifeline to India was secured. Victoria shared the public rejoicing and decided it was the right moment to claim what she considered to be long overdue. In common conversation, I am sometimes called Empress of India. Why have I never officially assumed this title? I feel I ought to do so, and wish to have preliminary inquiries made. Disraeli introduced a bill in Parliament to bestow on Victoria the title 
Queen Empress of India. Gladstone led the opposition, calling the move theatrical bombast and folly. But the title was granted and the Queen was delighted. She expressed her gratitude by making Disraeli an earl. She was deeply grateful to Disraeli for this. It was, if you like, uh, embellishing the British monarchy and at the same time the Queen is given a new sense of responsibility. She is deeply interested in India. Uh, immediately she is made empress. She sets out to, to learn Hindustani. It doesn't make much headway, but there's a lot of, lot of goodwill there. And she also hires Indian servants. Various Maharajas sent her jewelry uh, to adorn her as Empress of India. Uh, and on uh, a New Year's Day, I believe, in 1876, uh, she put on some of the jewelry, uh, which didn't go with her bulky uh, build. And Disraeli was there uh, and admired them. And she said, uh, do you want to see the rest of them that I'm not wearing? And of course, he had to say yes. And she brought out boxes of jewels, uh, which represented what India meant to her. Between them, the Queen Empress and her newly ennobled Prime Minister appealed to an imperial spirit that was spreading through large sections of the British public. An aggressive spirit, flexing British muscle and lording it over the world. Gladstone continued to oppose it. He called it showy imperialism. Even Disraeli's own foreign secretary wrote privately of his concerns. Disraeli believes thoroughly in prestige and would think it in the interests of the country to spend 200 millions on a war if the result was to make foreign states think more highly of us. The Queen backed Disraeli to the hilt. If we are to maintain our position as a first-rate power, we must, with our Indian empire and large colonies, be prepared for attacks and wars somewhere or other continually. But the strain of this imperialist policy was beginning to show. British forces in southern Africa had clashed with the most powerful warrior nation on the continent, the Zulu. At the Battle of Isandlwana, 600 British soldiers were wiped out to a man. It took 17,000 British reinforcements, armed with the latest artillery, to defeat an enemy armed largely with spears. Back in England, a powerful voice was raised in protest. Gladstone was no longer in control of Parliament, so he appealed directly to the British people. The sanctity of life in the hill villages is as inviolable in the eye of Almighty God as can be your own. The power of his oratory drew vast crowds. 10,000 Zulus had died, he claimed. For no other offense to defend against your artillery with their naked bodies, their hearts, their homes, their wives, their families. I mean, it is one of the great mysteries about Gladstone, how his oratory was so effective. 
because he wasn't a tremendous phrase maker. And he didn't talk down to his audience, and he rather talked up to them. And yet he held them for these very long periods. An hour and a half was quite normal in great mass meetings. I think it was essentially his physical presence, the sort of flash of his eagle's eye, the drama of his gestures, the cadence of his voice. I was fascinated when an old man came up to me and said, my father used to be a shouter for Gladstone. Which was absolutely precise meaning he was employed at a Gladstone meeting, together with a number of other people, to stand about 20 to 30 yards back, back from the platform and to turn round and attempt to relay Gladstone to the uh, more distant audience. He's going on to Bulgarian atrocities now. And it do does seem to be absolute proof that a lot of the uh, fringes, or even wide fringes of the meeting, could not actually hear what Gladstone was saying. But the fact that he could hold a mass audience standing for an hour and a half when they couldn't really hear what he was saying is the most tremendous tribute I can think of to, um, to, to the sheer force of his physical presence. The Queen was outraged. She complained in her journal, Mr. Gladstone is going about like an American stumping orator, making most violent speeches. But to her surprise and dismay, Gladstone had struck a popular chord. Once more, he had appealed to the British sense of justice and fair play. They voted the Liberals back into power with a massive majority. Gladstone wrote exultantly of the defeat of Disraeli and the showy imperialism he represented. It is like the vanishing of some magnificent castle in an Italian romance. Prince Albert would have shared Gladstone's pleasure at the dismissal of Disraeli's warmongering government. But Victoria had turned her back on Albert's moral vision for the empire. She stubbornly refused to accept Gladstone as her new prime minister. She wrote to her private secretary, The Queen will sooner abdicate than send for or have any communication with that half-mad firebrand who would soon ruin everything and be a dictator. Others but herself may submit to his democratic rule, but not the Queen. But she was a constitutional monarch, and submit she must. Gladstone returned to power, determined to reverse Disraeli's imperialist policies. He set out to achieve home rule for Ireland. He pressed for the appointment of more Indian judges and ensured that Englishmen could no longer refuse to appear before them. But in Africa, Gladstone could do little to halt the public hunger for conquest, a hunger nourished by the further adventures of David Livingston. Livingston had returned to Africa to search for the source of the River Nile. For five years, he disappeared without a trace, and his obituary even appeared in the press. There's no doubt that traveling in Africa had gone into his blood. But it was also, I think, he felt that if he succeeded in this, he would gain credibility again. He would show himself as a person who'd explored and found the source of the Nile. And that would give credence to his views on slavery and the development of Africa through Christianity and commerce. 
but he was at this time more and more affected by illness. He was losing he was losing blood. He would have attacks of malaria and dysentery. He had hemorrhoids, and he was a, a very very sick man. A journalist, Henry Morton Stanley, was sent to Africa by an American newspaper with orders to find the lost missionary. Stanley fought his way through warring tribes, spurred on by reported sightings of Livingston. After seven months, he finally reached the remote trading post deep in the interior. here in November 1871. A famous meeting took place. Dr. Livingston, I presume. Whether or not the immortal words were fact or fiction, Stanley had found his man. The news was telegraphed around the world. But when the headlines had faded, Livingston was still in Africa, alone, desperately lonely and increasingly unwell. Close to death, he wrote a final letter beseeching the world to abolish the slave trade. All I can add in my loneliness is may heaven's rich blessing come down on everyone, American, English or Turk who will help to heal the open sore of the world. On the night of April 30th, 1873, David Livingston died. His body was wrapped in a shroud of tree bark and calico for its long journey back to England. But first, Livingston's servants cut his heart out and buried it under a tree so that it would always remain in Africa. When the body finally arrived in Britain, the Queen declared a day of national mourning. Livingston was buried in Westminster Abbey, and the words of his final letter were engraved on his tomb. But Livingston's African adventures had an effect he would never have endorsed. Africa, the dark continent of the early explorers, became the stage for the final act in the story of Queen Victoria's empire. In the footsteps of missionaries like David Livingston, the powers of Europe conducted a brutal race for colonies. In Britain, this last burst of expansion was inspired by two men whose stories would bring the British people to a climax of imperialistic fervor. The first, General Charles Gordon, Sent on a diplomatic mission to a poor Arab country, 
he launched a personal crusade to free an oppressed people. His defiant stand would draw his queen and her empire into a holy war and lead them on a romantic but violent quest to impose a new world order. The second, Cecil John Rhodes, started out as a simple cotton farmer, and he became the greatest empire builder of his generation. To fund his dreams of conquest, he embarked on a ruthless pursuit of diamonds, gold, and power that made him the most formidable and the most hated man in Africa. Between them, Cecil Rhodes and Charles Gordon exemplified the virtues and the vices of their age. They would lead the British to new heights of glory, and they would expose the dark underside of Victoria's empire. At the age of 60, Queen Victoria still wore the black satin and lace she had donned in mourning for her beloved husband, Prince Albert, who had died 20 years before. To her 350 million subjects across the world, she was the godlike symbol of British power and prestige. But in the winter of 1884, her empire faced a serious threat from one of the poorest and most obscure regions on Earth, the Sudan. There is this saying among the Arabs, when Allah made the Sudan, he laughed. In Queen Victoria's time, most of its nine million people were nomads roaming a wilderness as large as Western Europe. The Sudan had no roads, no railways, and most of it was unmapped. Out of this wilderness came a prophet an Islamic preacher who became known to the Arabs and then to the world as the Mahdi, the expected one. The Mahdi inspired the warlike tribes of the Sudan to rise up against their corrupt rulers. His armies swept through the country like the Samum itself, the notorious wind of the desert. Many in England soon feared that a jihad, or holy war, would sweep northward into Egypt and threaten the lifeline of the British Empire, the Suez Canal. Three quarters of the ships using the canal were British, and it formed a vital link to Victoria's richest possessions in India and the East. For this reason, British troops were stationed in Egypt to protect it. Now the Queen urged her Prime Minister, Gladstone, to use those troops against the Mahdi. The Queen feels very strongly about the Sudan and Egypt, and she must say she thinks a blow must be struck. These are wild Arabs, and they would not stand against regular troops at all. We must make a demonstration of strength. Gladstone did his level best to treat the Queen with courtesy but he did not place great value on her judgment. Quite worthless. Gladstone's an extraordinary statesman. As a young man, he is a Tory, very right-wing views. As an old man, 
he has very left-wing and radical views. As most people get more conservative they get older, he makes the reverse journey. But the most important thing in Gladstone's life is that whenever he has any problem, any political problem, he speaks to God. He asks for God's guidance. Gladstone was a champion of human rights, and he believed in opposing tyranny. He was against the use of British troops to suppress what he saw as a popular uprising in the Sudan. But the press and public were of the Queen's opinion. They wanted action. Gladstone's government decided to play for time. They proposed sending a top army officer to the Sudan to report on the situation. For this mission, they chose one of the most popular heroes of the Victorian age, General Charles George Gordon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, The Life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you and have a great day.